The revival of Gucci is one of the most powerful comeback stories of 90s fashion. By 1990, the house of Gucci had almost torn itself apart. But the storied Italian brand found the person who could pull it back together in the decade's wildest of wildcards, a relatively unknown American named Tom Ford. In 1990, the recently appointed VP and creative director of Gucci, Dawn Mello, took a chance on Tom Ford, hiring him as a designer for the women's ready-to-wear line. Mello wanted to revamp the entire house of Gucci, and in Tom Ford, she found an ideal renovator. Tom Ford brought unexpected sex appeal and glamour to his designs, and soon the international fashion press couldn't stop talking about this daring new designer and his audacious vision for Gucci. It was exactly the shot in the arm that the house of Gucci needed. Tom Ford's makeover of this classic Italian fashion house was a potent symbol of a new era in fashion. Under Ford's direction and through his vision, Gucci reclaimed Italian luxury by supercharging old-school American cinematic glamour with in-your-face European sensuality and sexiness, paving the way for the merging of celebrity and fashion. And in doing so, Tom Ford thrust Gucci into the global fashion conversation. Welcome to In Vogue, the 1990s, a podcast about a pivotal time that ushered in a new era in fashion and in culture. Join us as we examine the defining moments of the decade that shape fashion as we know it today. We'll hear from fashion leaders, cultural icons, and Vogue's own editorial team. I'm Anna Winter. And I'm Hamish Bowles, Vogue's international editor-at-large and your host. In 1990, Gucci was a brand on a dangerous precipice. The house of Gucci had just emerged from years of internal power struggles, a political family drama which could be a whole podcast on its own. But for brevity's sake, let's just say that in the 70s and 80s, the house of Gucci was a house divided. Heirs to the Gucci brand, sons and grandsons of founder Guccio Gucci, spent decades jockeying for control of the company. The brand was partitioned and controlled by opposing factions of the Gucci family and external stakeholders. The result was a chaotic period of growth and uncertainty. Throughout all this turmoil, Gucci still brought in millions of dollars in revenue, but that success came at a price. Gucci had devalued itself, flooding the market with too many products. With Gucci everywhere, it was in danger of losing value as a luxury brand. In 1989, Gucci attempted to correct its course by hiring Dawn Mello. She'd just come from Bergdorf Goodman and, as Tom Ford himself recalls, it seemed like a risky move. I remember sitting at my desk at Perry Ellis, reading Women's Wear Daily, and I read that Dawn Mello from Bergdorf Goodman, had gone to Gucci. And I remember thinking, what is she thinking? Because Gucci at that time, it was really one of those brands that had been so overly licensed and exploited that, that really everything that Gucci had once been had been destroyed. I just remember thinking, this is crazy. Why is she leaving Bergdorf Goodman to go to Gucci? It makes no sense. And then my next thought was, Oh, she must know something I don't know. 
What Tom Ford didn't yet know was that Dawn Mello had a strategy. First, she quickly closed most of Gucci's brick and mortar stores to make their products more exclusive. Then she set out to find fresh design talent for Gucci. And so I went to the Gucci building at that time, which was on 5th, and the offices were quite old, uh, a bit run down. And I went and met with Dawn. And I don't believe I had a second meeting. I think word kind of immediately came back that she liked me, and if I wanted the job, I was hired. And uh, two or three weeks later, packed up all of our suitcases, got rid of our apartment, and took our dog, uh, the smooth fox terrier called John, and moved to Milan. Joining Dawn Mello to reinvent Gucci was just the latest left turn in Tom Ford's somewhat unconventional path to fashion stardom. He moved to New York City in the late 70s, first to study art history at NYU, and then dropped out to pursue a career in acting. But that was also a bit of a misdirect. I was way too self-conscious in front of the camera. I also realized I wanted to be on the other side of the camera. I would often think that the lines I had to say were, you know, weren't great, and <laughs> that what the director was doing wasn't right. I thought, you know, I've got to think of a new career. This isn't what I want to do. And uh, at the time, I had also always been interested in interior architecture and in design. As a kid, I thought I would probably grow up and, and be an architect. So I uh, took a class at Otis Parsons, and I realized that I was very interested in design, and I enrolled in Parsons in New York, environmental design, and it was the undergraduate program uh, for architecture. The idea was to go through Parsons get your bachelor's degree, and then go on to graduate school in architecture. So I did that, and while I was at Parsons in New York, I decided to do my third year at uh, Parsons in Paris. So I moved to Paris, and while at Paris, I took a trip uh, to Russia. And this sounds really crazy and, and very romantic, but I was in Moscow <laughs> or Leningrad. I don't remember which. It was called Leningrad then. Uh, and this would have been in the early, I guess, mid-80s, maybe 1983, 1984. So Russia was still Soviet. And I had eaten something that had made me very unwell, and I was in my hotel room. And I do not know why. I guess it had been in the back of my head for a long time, struggling with architecture, realizing that I often cared more about what the little people that I was putting inside my building models were going to be wearing uh, than I did about the actual structure of the building and that I was more concerned with the aesthetics of the architecture often than, uh, you know, perhaps more important aspects of whatever I was designing. And I was struggling with kind of what am I going to do when I get out of school? What am I going to do? I, I don't know that I really want to be an architect. And it was literally like a kind of thunk over the head, an epiphany. And I, as I said, I was in my hotel room by myself. I hadn't felt well. I stayed in that night. And I sat up in bed and I thought, oh, my God. Fashion. Fashion. I should be a fashion designer. And so Tom made another career change. While still in Paris, he'd interned for Chloe in their PR department. Upon returning to Parsons in New York for his final year, instead of switching majors so far along in his education, he finished school in architecture and took as many elective courses in fashion as he could. He had the right alma mater, but the wrong degree. Nevertheless, he was determined to find a way into the fashion industry, by any means necessary. And I drew up a portfolio, and I went to 7th Avenue, and I looked up all the names of the companies that I wanted to, and I literally stood in the lobby 
of all of those buildings on 7th Avenue. There were really two or three where most of the designers were, and I put quarters in the payphone, and I called and called and called and called and called. Can I come in? I'm a young designer. You know, I, have, I just graduated from Parsons then. Blah, 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 and I have a portfolio. Are you hiring? I, I did this over and over. I called a woman who's a, a wonderful woman who's still a friend today called Kathy Hardwick, who at the time was a contemporary designer, it was called. Mostly department stores, but very modern. And she miraculously said she would see me, or her receptionist did. So I got in the elevator, and I went up with my book, and I sat down. I showed her my book. I was kind of lying in a way because I said, I just graduated from Parsons and here's my portfolio. I never said, you know, gee, I, I didn't graduate in fashion. And, and other than drawing it, I don't know a lot about fashion construction. And she hired me. And uh, that was my first job on 7th Avenue. She later told me that she hired me not because she thought that I was going to be a good design assistant, but that she thought I had a nice hand. And uh, that I, I was good looking. <laughs> and that was why she hired me. I remember my first day on the job, or one of my first days on the job, she asked me to sketch circle skirts. And I knew what a circle skirt was, but I didn't know the construction. And I went downstairs and I uh, got on the train. I went up to Bloomingdale's. And I went to the women's department. I flipped up in a bunch of circle, circle skirts. I saw where all the seams were made. I got back on the train and went back to the office and I drew up circle skirts with all the seams. And so I kind of masqueraded for a while, uh, you know, uh, pretending that I knew more about construction than I really did. And through working with Kathy, I learned a lot about construction. I left Kathy Hardwick at a certain point to take a bigger position at, at Perry Ellis. From Perry Ellis, I knew that I wanted to move up to a, a higher price point. I wanted to move up to what was, you know, then called designer level. And uh, I actually interviewed with Calvin quite a few times. So. Calvin is obviously Calvin Klein. I later said to Calvin, you know, I interviewed with you a total of nine times. And at one point you offered me a job and you never called me back. Who knows what would have happened if Calvin Klein had called Tom Ford back. But Calvin never called. Gucci, however, did. And so Tom Ford headed to Italy. What happened there after the break. Hey, Run Through listeners. Are you curious about what goes on behind the scenes at Vogue and in the world of fashion? Join Vogue Club, a one-of-a-kind fashion community where you can unlock exclusive access to Vogue editors, industry players, and fellow members, as well as receive expert style advice, tickets to VIP events, hand-picked gifts, and so much more. Visit VogueClub.com today and get 20% off using promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. That's VogueClub.com, promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. For the first few years as Gucci's ready-to-wear designer, Tom followed Dawn Mello's direction under the watchful eye of Maurizio Gucci. When Dawn Mello left the company in 1994, Tom was promoted to her position as creative director and began to think seriously about bringing sex and glamour back to the brand. But I found this box of photos, and it was all movie stars wearing the scarves, carrying the bag, coming in and out of the shop. And I thought, you know, this brand at one point was the deep brand that every celebrity in the world wanted. How do I make it that again? And that was when I was really able to assert 
my own creative vision for the company. I had this window of time when the, the business side of Gucci was not looking at all at the design that I did, didn't care, wasn't involved. So I had this opportunity to do what I felt was right, and I did. For fall 1995, Tom Ford debuted a sensational collection of jewel-toned satin shirts, hip-slung velvet jeans, and shaggy shearling cabane coats for men and women. I'm proud to say I own the dusty pink velvet suit, look number 10. This show catapulted Tom Ford and Gucci into the spotlight. It was my first runway for Gucci. Amber Valletta is an international fashion model and actor. But I do remember meeting Tom and seeing Tom and thinking, oh my God, he's so handsome. And he was so like old movie star and debonair. And like, just, I, I, I was like sort of crushing on him. And, and he was American, this American in Europe. And he had such like style. And it was just, he was so different than anybody I had met in fashion. And Tom, did something that nobody had done. He brought back an era of kind of sex and glamour that hadn't been around in a while. And he brought back kind of that like sex and I don't know, like luxe gorgeousness. <laughs> just I remember thinking this show, everybody just looks so good and sexy and cool. And um, But it, I didn't know it was gonna be a moment. had been at Gucci for for a couple of seasons when he had this absolute breakout collection. It really lingers in the memory. Nicole Phelps is Vogue's global director of Vogue Runway. Silk velvet in jewel tones, satin shirts in chartreuse, unbuttoned to the belly button, it felt like. The following year, for Gucci's fall 1996 runway, Tom Ford continued to explore sleek, 70s-inspired seduction. The theme was palpable. The soundtrack, a mix of 70s-inspired music and contemporary hits. I mean, it was sexy, but I mean, the thing with dressing in the 70s in general was that the clothes were like a second skin. They were often much lighter fabrics, much softer fabrics, you know, that you wouldn't want to mar with bra lines or other underpinnings. Led Borelli Person is Vogue's archive editor. They were soft, they were next to your skin, they, they showed the body, they were sexy in that way. Thinking about velvet, it is my absolute favorite fabric. It has been forever. It's in every collection I do. It's generally on every sofa that I make in my house. Uh, and I, I love the richness of velvet because I love the color it takes. People often think I'm all about black. It's not true. But I actually love color when it's done the right way. Velvet takes color really well. And uh, that's one of the reasons I love it. It's also what I was talking about earlier in that you can make a very simple shape in velvet, but when you touch it, it has a, uh, a richness to it. So you can make minimal things that uh, are very tactile and sensual and sexy. That collection was uh, somewhat unisex. I had men passing women on the runway in the exact same velvet suit. It for me was maybe the most literal late 70s collection that I did during that period of time. Fashion, as we know, 
goes through cycles. What is old is new again when past trends are reimagined for modern audiences. Each generation and each time that a generation interprets a previous period, they put their own stamp on it. And really, it was the perfect moment for the 70s all over again. In high fashion, those revivals often coincide with designers' nostalgia for their personal experiences. For Tom Ford, that meant the glamour and excitement of New York in the 1970s. I remember longing for the sort of hedonism of Studio 54. I had a very short period of time at Studio 54. You know, I caught really the tail end of it in 1979, 1980, before it closed. But it was enough to impact my design aesthetic really for life. But I longed for the, the visual minimalism and, and richness of that period because the late 70s were very minimal. However, when you touched anything in the late 70s, it wasn't minimal. The touch of things was sensual. There was a sensuality to it. It was silk or it was fur or it was velvet. And I longed for that. Halston, the American designer who came to international prominence in the 1970s, was a big inspiration for Tom Ford. You can see the influence of Halston's beautifully draped Grecian column dresses on Tom Ford's 1996 collections. But Tom wasn't just an admirer of Halston's designs. He was absorbed by Halston's entire aesthetic. I, I was once in Halston's house, only once, in uh, probably the end of 1979. And it, it made such a tremendous impact that I've, I've lived off of uh, that period and, and that experience and, and have, uh, having been in that house, which influenced so many of my own houses over the years, and, uh, designs for sofas in my stores, and, and I drew on uh, creatively you know, many times throughout my life. It became part of my core design aesthetic. And, uh, you know, I'm fortunate enough now to actually own that house, which has enormous sentimental value to me. It was the first show for Gucci that I did, and I was like 20-year-old. Georgina Grenville is an international fashion model who walked in Tom Ford's full 1996 runway show, one of his most Holston-inspired collections. It was like always quite a festive atmosphere. It was in the good old days when it wasn't just one look, one girl. It was five looks, one girl. So I think that Tom and Gucci really uh, embraced the kind of luxury, sensual sexuality. But at the same time, it was quite accessible. So it was a pretty spectacular beginning. Gucci was one of those shows where every look was fantastic. And that show was pretty fabulous. The full 1996 collection featured more of those glamorous Gucci separates, this season based around pants. But the real showstoppers were the soon-to-be iconic red velvet suits and the evening dresses. As the disco music played, a single spotlight focused on the blank runway. Georgina Grenville walked out in a slinky white jersey dress anchored with a golden metal belt. I had a series of white dresses that were Halston-inspired in their simplicity, in the 
the fact that they were just column dresses, which have always been my favorite things uh, to design. I wore the last white dress, and I have that one as well, which has a kind of buckle in the front and cutouts on the sides. It felt young and sexy and strong and all those things. Tom Ford took the essence of 70s glamour and hedonism and adapted it to the modern era. But in the 90s, that meant pushing the boundary even further. The following year, for the spring 1997 collection, he introduced the Gucci G-string. And by the way, just the name of a G-string, think about it. Gucci G, G-string. Not hard to figure out. Anyway, there was a moment when I was sending this down the runway, and I was sending it down the runway on a girl and a guy. And I remember thinking, why did he choose me? Because I, I never felt that confident about my backside. <laughs> it took some psyching up and, you know, like you're there with all your friends and they're all like, oh, I'm glad you're wearing that, not me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I was standing backstage and usually backstage I'm checking everyone's outfit and, you know, looking at them, going head to toe with them front and back. I was lucky because I wore it and so did a boy. And I think it was probably harder for the boy than it was for me. <laughs> Not that many male models wanted to wear the G-string. And it was hard to find somebody who had the right kind of body, a good model, who actually agreed to go down front in the G-string. And... I was backstage right before we were about to send him out. So this guy stepped up to me. I looked at him in the front. Great. I looked at him in the back. I don't know how to say this politely, but let's just say there was a lot of hair sticking out of the back of his G-string. And I panicked. I thought, oh, my God, we cannot send him down the runway like that. And I reached over to Orlando, our hairdresser who was backstage. But oh, my God, Orlando, he cannot go out like this. He cannot go out like this. Get me a razor. And he handed me essentially a beard trimmer by today's standards, I guess you would call it. And I asked this guy to quickly bend over. I took the beard trimmer. I shaved up one side. I shaved up the other side. He stood up and he went out. <laughs> it was impactful at the time because like nobody expected it. People were surprised for sure. <laughs> As the models walked the runway, a single bright spotlight shined on them. The G-string was black with a single metal Gucci G logo on the back. That little metal logo glimmering against their bare backs. And Tom Ford with his cinematic flair always showed things under spotlights. Led Borelli Person, Vogue's archive editor. The shows were dark, the models were, you know, put in literally a spotlight and, you know, it emphasized this sort of film noir, you know, something exciting and edgy and, you know, like a very swanky club or it added, you know, intrigue. And so that was part of his whole approach to reimagining Gucci. You could orchestrate a show to give a very cinematic performance. You could have the entire room see and feel the exact same thing at the exact same moment and you could control it. And so you could get people to cry. You know, you could get people to feel, to emote, because they were so involved. And, and when you have something like that, and you have that kind of electricity in a room of other, you know, it, it, the person next to you reacting the same way you do, it, it's like being at a play. You, you can feel a certain electricity between the model and the audience and the clothes, and you get everyone to gasp at the same time. 
Tom Ford knew how to build sexually charged drama and how to create buzz, and because of that quality, celebrities recognised a compatriot. You, you've got to remember, it came just like it was all grunge and heroin chic, and then along came Tom Ford with, like you said, this kind of Hollywood glamour. I would say that the red velvet suit, well, that's the piece that I still like wish I had that red velvet suit. Georgina Grenville wasn't the only one to recognise the glamour of that red velvet suit. I wore the menswear version myself to the CFDA Awards. And Gwyneth Paltrow wore her version for the 1996 MTV Movie Awards. And, you know, to get Gwyneth Paltrow in your red velvet Gucci tux. Nicole Phelps director of Vogue Runway. It was a great moment for Tom Ford and the Gucci brand, but it was also, you know, a game-changing red carpet appearance for for Gwyneth Paltrow too. The kind of attention, maybe the public's hunger for, for that kind of celebrity content. Tom Ford's designs had even made it into a Spice Girls music video worn by Victoria Beckham, known then as Posh Spice. The first ever designer outfit for Posh Spice was probably the Mama video. Um, And I was wearing Tom Ford for Gucci and I had some beautiful um, pants, a bikini top. I mean, why wouldn't I wear a bikini top for a pop video when I'm singing about my mother? It was bizarre. But it was Tom Ford for Gucci and I didn't care. And a lovely little skinny gold belt and some gorgeous Gucci high-heeled shoes. And I was the only one that was wearing designer clothes. I think that I took the entire budget. And I was very happy to do it because they all wanted to wear those big, horrible buffalo um, sort of shoes that Buffalo was giving to the Spice Girls totally free. So that left a little bit of budget for Posh to become truly Posh. What I feel that I really made Gucci into, or I hope I did in the 1990s, was a brand that was aspirational. Uh, For me, fashion has always been about what you dream your life could be, uh, how you would love to see the world. Um, I've said that, you know, it's not something new that I'm saying, but no matter how old you get, for example, you can always look down and see a beautiful, shiny pair of shoes on your feet. It's a way, fashion is a way to to renovate yourself. It's a way to look forward. Everything I ever sent down a runway at Gucci or later at Yves was meant to be a real proposition of the way I felt men and women should look at that moment. The hair was the way I thought men and women should wear their hair at the moment. that moment, the makeup, shoes, the clothes, the bag, everything. It was exactly, it was a real and true proposition for my ideal of a man or a woman at that particular moment. How I would like to walk into a room, walk into a dinner party, That's what that was. What I hope I did with my clothes at Gucci and with that time was to capture the zeitgeist of a moment and to take what was in the air and turn it into a tangible thing that you could buy, that you could wear, that you could participate in, to turn it into a tangible head-to-toe look, an ideal of the perfect woman, the perfect man for that period of time. I think that's what good 
fashion does. It's relevant. It relates to that moment. It's a mirror of our culture, our society at any moment in time. In that way, it's contemporary. But that was what was in the air culturally, you know, across every artistic, uh, you know, across the entire artistic spectrum. That was in the air at that time. And so I hope that I had the right thing at the right time. In Vogue, the 1990s, is presented by Anna Winter and produced by Jasmine Aguilera, Julia Doyle, Kinsey Clark, Tarka Zen, and Megan Lubin. Edited by Maura Wolfs. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Mixed by Rainhouse. In Vogue's editorial team is Laird Borelli-Person, Mark Holgate, Nicole Phelps, and myself. Special thanks to creative editorial director Mark Riducci, digital director Annalisa Yabsley, and vice president of audio Julie Shen. Please do subscribe to the podcast. It helps new listeners find the show. You can find additional information, incredible imagery, and episode references in the show notes or at vogue.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Hamish Bowles. Until next week, in Vogue.